0: Amen. To quickly catch us up to speed, King Saul has died. His sons have died along with his heirs. King David has now become king just as God had promised him that he would. And now he's not only king over all of Judah, but king over all of Israel as well. One of his first acts as king was to to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant, which was actually located in, a, in, in, a, in an out-of-the-way city in the northwest portion of the country. And him receiving and retrieving the Ark of the Covenant once again was significant because the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God it really marked the, the reign, the reconciliation, and the revelation of God for his people. So when he goes and he retrieves the Ark of the Covenant, brings it back to the city of Jerusalem, he was making a clear statement for everyone. He was saying that from here on out, God is going to be our very pursuit. God is going to be in the center of everything that we do. And last week, our study ended with this great celebration. The people were making merry. We we talked about that, and they were rejoicing, they were worshiping and because of god's uh, because of, of of god's presence returning to his people, everybody was worshiping well almost everybody. At the very end of chapter 6, we find out that there was one, a wife of David, a a woman by the name of Michael, who was not so pleased with all that was going on. She she had nothing to do with, uh, she was not a part of the processional that brought the ark back. She refused to take part in the festivities once the ark had arrived. Instead of rejoicing, she was flat out angry at what was going on and what David was doing at this point. Now we've got the Lord's Supper in just just a couple moments, but before we do, I want to try to get at the point of this text. What exactly is it about? And I've got two points that I want to share with you this morning, I think hopefully to unpack its meaning. But here's here's the, the bad news. The bad news is the entire sermon is basically wrapped up. All its explanation, and applica- or, uh, uh, um, explanation is wrapped up in the first point. The good news is that when we get to the second point, we're pretty much done. Uh, it's just a little bit of application to that point. So bear through uh, point one and we'll get to point two, and we will be done to take the Lord's Supper. So what's the point of all of this? What are we supposed to understand and, 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 and through, through Michael's anger that we see in this text? Well, point number one, pursuit of God always results in the disapproval of the world. Pursuit of God always results in the disapproval of the world. If you will, follow along in verse 16, if you will. The Bible says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Something very important to keep at the forefront of her mind as you study through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is to understand it's a story of two different kingdoms. Uh, these two kingdoms are constantly at odds and up- Position and, and there 's tension between them there 's the Kingdom of David and the Kingdom of Saul, but both of them represent something far bigger than themselves. The Kingdom of God or the Kingdom of David represents the Kingdom of God. It demonstrates a people who are under the lordship of God they, they are seeking after him, they want to know his will, and they want to submit themselves in every possible way to the will of God king or King Saul's uh, kingdom ultimately represents the kingdom of this world. And it's a group of people who really have no desire to do what is right in the eyes of God, but rather seek to do what's right in their own eyes. They have no desire to please God. Their greatest desire and everything they do is led by an insatiable appetite to do what ultimately pleases them. This is what we see in the book of 2 Samuel. And here in the end of chapter 6, we are reminded of that Tension once again between these two kingdoms you say well how can that be Saul's dead well he may be dead but his kingdom still remains even to today and I think that's what the author is trying to get at with speaking about Michael if you notice when he references Michael he doesn't the author doesn't introduce her as as Michael uh, the, the the wife of David did you notice that instead it was Michael the daughter of Saul and he does that not only once but he does it three times because what he's trying to get our attention try to focus on is this tension is still between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world well how does she respond to David how does she respond to this kingdom of God well the Bible says that it says of Michael that she despised him in her heart she despised David this isn't like dislike or the kind of like stink eye that your wife might give you because for the upteenth time you haven't picked up your, your dirt socks off the floor all right this is hatred this is a contempt and deep deep repugnance for her husband so the question is what is it that he did what is it that he did to be able to stir up such loathsome emotion in the heart of his wife for him? I don't know, man. You might want to know, right? And so, so you might want to know what it is that makes her so angry. It was, was there something that he did? Did he manipulate her? Did he abuse her? Did he mistreat her, demean her in any way? The Bible doesn't give any evidence of any of that happening. The reason that she hates him is for one reason and one reason alone. It's because of his pursuit in his worship of God. His pursuit of God, of going and getting the Ark of the Covenant, bringing it back with him, and then him worshiping God because of it. We see him worship in three different ways. He, he worships by dancing before the Lord. He worship. We we see that in verse sixteen, verse eighteen. He worships his God by offering up burnt offerings. Again, in verse nineteen, he worships God by showing benevolence to God's people by feeding those who are in need that particular day in celebration. He's worshiping God, and she doesn't like it. Now in verse 20, notice, it really begins to get at the heart of Michael. It says, David returned to bless his household, but Michael then, daughter of Saul, there it is again, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. This is not a good thing, right, of what she's saying. She's berating him. She's, she's basically a critic of his saying, you stripped yourself naked in front of everybody and made a fool out of yourself. And, and, and what's interesting here is what David, here's the key, what David sees as worship, she sees as repulsive. What David saw as right she sees as wrong and as offensive. That's how these two kingdoms work. What is right in the eyes of those in the kingdom of God, the the people in the world, those that are in the world, they view it as repugnant, as repulsive, And and, and here, she begins to do what all critics of God's people do. She begins to overreact and to exaggerate. She begins uh, talking about him uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, the female servants. Now, she's overreacting because that's what hatred does. It takes something you don't like, and what you do is you try to do everything you can to bend and twist it and make it look ugly. Well, was he, did he strip down? No, he was wearing a linen ephod. We all wear linen ephids, correct? Uh, um, I mean, what's the problem? So, what he's talking about is basically the undergarments for the priests. And we're not talking about. Well, I don't want to go there, but our undergarments, all right? We're talking about basically something that would have clothed all the way down. It was a gown all the way basically down to their feet. Their arms uh, were covered. Everything was, was covered. Now, why was David doing this? Well, David wasn't trying to take the place of the priest. He knew his role as a king, but as a king, he knew his job was to lead the people even in worship. He, he, he adorns himself in this linen ephod, this priestly attire for the purpose of being a lead worshiper among his, his people. By the way, that's what it means to be a leader in your own home, to be a lead worshiper and pursuer of God. That's what he's doing. But, but what happens here is Michael exaggerates because that's what hatred does. Her hatred naturally led her to make what she hated look vulgar and shameless. These are the very words that Michael uses in describing David's pursuit of God and his worship for God. Now, that's so much of the explanation. The question is, what does that mean? What does that mean for us here at Mercy Hill? Is this simply a lesson of being more, learning to be more tolerant of one another in the way that we worship? Uh, I, in other words, is it, hey, well, you know, uh, Michael, you know, she's more traditional. She likes traditional hymns. And, uh, and David, he just is a little fancy free and a little feels a little more freedom. He's a, the contemporary type. And so what we need to do is we just need to all get along. Now, the reason that I say that is, surprisingly or not, and so, so some of the research and some of the reading of this text I was astounded by some of the takes of people who were preaching this particular passage. One particular gentleman, and I quote, he says, so let's see, this is his application. Here's the point of what's going on. He says, so let's see if as a church, we can move beyond arguments about how much of our worship is contemporary and traditional. Instead, let us have a striving. That's so Let us have a striving. Have you had a striving lately? He says, let us have a striving for real, passionate, inspired, tolerant worship. We certainly have all probably experienced, if you've been in church for any length of time, the disruption of worship wars, right? Uh, you were there when the infiltrators of contemporary worship begin to sneak in the church and begin to throw everything into a tizzy, right? And usually they're, the young people, by the way, they are the ones that did it, and so the young people come in and they begin to do it. And, and we've seen churches, haven't we, seen churches that have literally ripped apart because of music styles that they're they're, they're unified through the person of Jesus Christ and the completed work of Jesus Christ, but somehow, because of their desire and passion for a certain type of music on both sides, they say, hey, you know what? Forget our relationship. Forget what we have in common. I want what I want, my music, or else we're not going to be able to get along. What a horrible thing that is. So certainly, we've seen that kind of division occur, and certainly, there are different types of expression of worship. In our own congregation here, we have two-handers and no-handers in worship, right? We have some people that once music begins to sing, it's just, I mean, it's like flipping a switch, you're whoop, there you go. I mean, you're just worshiping God, you just, I mean, you can't help it, it, it it's natural to you, you feel great about it, and some of you ain't never raising your hands, right? I mean, even if you get robbed, you're like, I ain't raising my hands, dude, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm not raising my hands. And then and then you've got then you've got kind of the Bapticostal people that are a little confused on all of this. They're excited about God, but they're not sure if it's a, and they're the one handers, right? And, and they're one handers and they're they're just kind of straying like this and never shall two hands go up. It's it's this hand gets tired, then it's the switch to this hand, right? So, so the the difficult of an explanation like this is certainly we look back and go, oh yeah, I can, I can completely see where all of this is fitting. I can see why all of this would be important. But to be able to interpret this passage in that way would be a really, really shallow understanding of the text of Scripture. And let me let me tell you why. Because first of all, this is not about the tension between God's people. This is the tension between the world and God's people. Secondly, this is not about music. This has nothing to do with music. It's not about music as worship. It's about life as worship. And and, and understand something. The the world, and, and I hate to say this, doesn't hate the church's music especially more contemporary music. Now, this, I'm I'm going to get in trouble all of a sudden. Uh, but but what I mean by that is, is that you'll even hear if you, if some of you who listen to secular music, how dare you, listen to secular music, and you're like, oh, that's a Christian song, whatever that is, Christian song. And they're playing it on the stage. This is so great. They must be getting religion. Now, really what's happening is that so many of the songs are so devoid of any mention of God, of Christ, or anything that would speak of the gospel, that it just sounds like a love song, right? And so basically, this Christian author says, I'm, This is a love song to God. And everyone else is like, This is a love song to Bob. This is a love song to Jenny. And I'm going to sing it out. This is a great song. And so they, they go, in, and that's, I'm not trying to indict, I'm not trying to be negative towards it. All I'm trying to say is that the world, for the most part, is not offended by your music, they're offended by your living. They're offended by what you believe. They're offended by the way that you live. It's not your music as worship. It's your life as worship that they find so utterly repugnant. It's what the church believes, preaches, and pursues that the world despises and ultimately hates. Now, let me be clear. The world should not despise or hate you and I because we're obnoxious, because we're prideful, Because we're arrogant or irritating or argumentative or annoying or blatantly offensive. Should I go on? Now, I don't even think I really have to unpack that. You know why? Because all of us in here are guilty of probably all of those things. We've even been all those things or we've at least seen all those things. Would you agree? And the world shouldn't hate us because we're weird. Uh, be, because we're in their face, that we're getting in front of people, and we seem hateful, and, 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 and we're, we're just telling everybody, oh, yeah, well, you will burn in hell. Ha! That's, it's, that's not in the spirit of God and love. Nothing about that is God. If you're hated for that, you deserve to be hated for that. But but, but what's the deal? So especially in, the, in this world, we need to understand, though, that, that we have all seen these things, been and done these things, but we are always to be loving. We are always to be caring. We are always to be merciful. We are always to be humble in what we say and what we believe and our interaction, not only with the church, but the people outside of the church. Would you amen that? That's what God has called us to. We should always be that way, especially in this world. So if we take away all of that then, we take away all the obnoxiousness, we take away all the arrogance, we take away all that, then will the world love the people of God? No, no. Because the reason that uh, the world and the world system hates us is not because of maybe per se an attitude, as much as it is of who we are associated with. The Bible says very clearly, Jesus Himself in John chapter fifteen and eighteen verses eight, verses eighteen through nineteen, He says, "If the world hates you, know that it hated me first before you. It hated me." He says, if, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He says, the world hates you because it hates me, and you're associated with me. Let me give you another verse. Matthew 24, 9, Jesus said on another occasion, then they will deliver you to tribulation, they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. How encouraging is that? Look, it's one thing to be hated by a neighbor or by somebody you know, in your office. It's another thing for God to tell you, you will be hated by all nations, right? And have a good day, right? And you walk away. What am I supposed to do with that? He adds, because of my name. Because of my name. Do you remember in our study of the book of Acts? Of course you do. That when we were teaching in chapter 4, we were talking about how Peter and John went to pray and they they healed this lame man and they were arrested. And, 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 and the Bible says that the, the, the uh, religious leaders became really angry with them and then were told why they were or they were greatly annoyed with them is actually what it says. And then they tell us why they were annoyed. In verse 13 it says they realized that they had been with Jesus. See, the world doesn't get angry because you do good things within your community. It doesn't get angry with that. Because if you're doing good things, they realize that's the right thing to do. In fact, they believe if they do enough of those things, that's how they're acceptable to God. So they're not going to be they're not they're not going to be angry if you're feeding the poor. They're not going to be angry if you're if you're clothing uh, the naked. They're, they're not angry at those things. Those are good things in the eyes of God. In the eyes of the world, even in the eyes of the world. And when we go to verse. The very next chapter, in chapter 5, we read about some of the other disciples. They too are arrested once again. And and this time, they're beaten. And, And why are they beaten? Because they were speaking in the name of Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, you will believe what Christ taught, you will teach what Christ taught, and you will live what Christ taught And you will be hated for those things. That's what's happening in the text of Scripture. That's what she hates. Question for us then, before we take the Lord's Supper, is is there enough evidence of Christ's teaching? Is there enough evidence in our living and in our speech of Christ that would call the world to hate us? see, there's a, the problem is there's different ways to be able to respond to this message, right? One is keep your mouth shut. Just lay low, don't say anything, never speak up, never do anything. Here, here's the opposite. Be annoying and correct everybody of everything that they ultimately say, right? I mean, every time I, I've been around Christians like that, you're somewhere and they're like, well, uh, this, and then somebody has to correct it and they correct it. That's just flat out annoying, you, you understand that, right? I mean it's like even in the church, like when we speak and we sit around and we talk to each other, when we're talking about God, we're making mistakes all the time oftentimes of just what we say that come out of our mouth. We're not intentionally doing it, but it's happening. and everybody hates the guy in the room that's got to correct everybody in the room, right? The world hates it even more. So what do we what what do we do? The fact that the bottom line is that the world is going to hate you even when you're on your best behavior, simply because of what you believe and what you speak and what you hold to be true and what you're trying to live out, that's what the world cannot forgive you for. Let let me give you a little bit more practicality here. The fact that you care for the rights of unborn children will make you appear extremely out of touch. Caring and upholding marriage as God's divine design will make you appear hateful. The call of all mankind, your call to all mankind to repent of their sin and to place their trust in Christ and and, in Him alone, you will be viewed as undignified for these things. Why would they hate you? Not because you're being a jerk. Simply because you're holding to the truths of God and you're living out those truths every day. Again, what do we do? Well, let me tell you how some have responded. Again, sometimes we could just shut up and not say anything. But there is a time to speak up. Not every time but there's a time you and i need need wisdom of god to know that when something's gone too far we need to know the opportunities that you know what this is my place this is a hill in which to die i need to speak up because the very the 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 very god that i love is now being admonished the very god that i love is is now uh, uh his glory is being threatened if you will they're trying to threat his threaten his glory And so the idea is there's a time to be able to speak. Let me tell you what some are doing, and we see it kind of sweeping across, not not lost people, but Christians Christians are, are trying to do everything they can to placate a lost world, to be able to get a seat at the table with those that are in the world by bending on what they believe. The way to really grow a church is to stand for nothing and preach nothing. The more bland a person is or a preacher is about the Word of God, the more people will be on board. But the more specific you are about the clear call of God on the life of believers, all of a sudden, people begin to go the other way. And the world is the same exact way. If you just talk about that there's a God, I'm okay with that. If you just talk about that we need God, hey, I'm okay with that. If you begin to say that God is a judge of sinners, all of a sudden, This is not going well at all. You are way too specific. You are way out of bounds. How are we to be able to respond to this? Point number two. (laughs) We cannot allow the disapproval of the world to diminish our pursuit of Christ. We cannot allow the disapproval of the world to diminish our pursuit of Christ. Let let me show you three things in in the text. First of all, look at David's choice in in verse 22. He says, in light of all of this, he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. He had a choice. Here's the choice. Reject God, and be loved by his wife, and be loved by the world. Choice number one. Choice number two, love God, pursue Him with everything that He is, and have the world continually love Him. He chooses B. He sits back and He says, in fact... If being despised by the world, the cause of being despised by the world, hated by the world, is my pursuit of Christ, then the only option I have is to pursue Him and to love Him and to speak Him and to speak about Him and to worship Him all the more. I'm going to do it all the more, not to annoy other people, but it's my only option. So that's his choice. And then we see David's why. Why does he choose that way? Go back up into verse 21. Why does he he choose this? he says there, it says um, in verse 21, and David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel and the people of the Lord. His decision to follow God was based on God's gracious choosing of him. Does that sound familiar? The reason that you and I continue to pursue him and not bend to the world is because God, by his great grace and his mercy, not because you're good, not because I'm good, not because I'm righteous, not because there's inherently anything good inside of me, but by his own goodness and grace, he chose you and he chose me for salvation. For salvation. And in loving us and calling us for that, it, it, it reminds me, do you remember the disciples? When the, when, when the disciples, uh, I've used this illustration before, but I've been here for a long time. So bear with me. When, when, when the disciples, when, when they had this huge group of people and all the people want to follow him and they don't really understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is very broad. Do you remember this? And, and he's very broad. And he's like, hey, you, 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 you want water? I'm the living water. You want bread? I'm the bread of life. And was like, oh, I want some bread. I'd love to be able to have some good old living water. That's good. They're, they're, they're spending a fortune down at the supermarket for that. Give me some good water, some, some, some good water. So they really good then all of a sudden, Jesus sits there and goes, "They're not getting it. Let me be more precise. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have nothing to do with me. Everybody goes away. Disciples left sitting there. You know what they're doing? Same thing. He says there. They go. Why why don't you leave? Here's Jesus' response, or here's the disciples' response. Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. We're not going to find eternal life in the world. We can only find that in the person of Jesus Christ. Why would we give up that for the love and admiration of the world? That's David's why. But then there's also David's comfort. Look at this very last thing in verse 22. He says, he says when, when he's speaking back to, to, to Michael, he says, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, do you remember when he said that? He goes, you, 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 you embarrass yourself between, by stripping in front of these women. And he says, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. We know his choice. We know the why of his choice. Here's the comfort of his choice. When you and I, it's just a clear example of why I need you. It's a clear example of why you need me, why we need each other as a faith family. Because when the world abandons you, when they hate you for following God, Those that are of God, these servant girls, will honor and love you. That's what's great about being in the body of Christ. Here's what we need to do, you and I. You and I need to encourage each other to be faithful. Courage each other to do what is right. Not to bend. Not to compromise. That happens too much in churches. We get in the flesh, we hear a brother or sister in Christ are struggling in a marriage, they're struggling in something else, and we feel bad for them, and we want to give them the out, the worldly answer by saying, here's how your life can be easier. That's not what you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are supposed to be doing. You and I are supposed to hold them up and to honor them and say, I know it's tough. Do what is worshipful to God, do what is right with God. We've got, we need that here. We need that as a church. Will you make a commitment with me? As we I can't control other churches. I can't control what's going on everywhere. So I can't even control what's here. All I could do is beg and pray and plead. Will you commit with me as members here at Mercy Hill not to bend? Not to compromise. No matter what's happening, no matter how much hatred. We can't go anywhere else. Where else will we go? We've got to have this. I was just reminded this week, and let me just say this. Uh, thank you so much. We've got to get to the Lord's Supper, but thank you so much for your support this week. With, with Annalise's surgery, by the way, it went really well. You're supposed to be in there for three days, she got out at it two days. Um, I don't know if it's because she did well or because I begged my wife to come home. I don't know what it was, but somewhere in there is the stories, the truth. And she came home and it went better you know, than we could have expected. We are so grateful for that. But to get a text from you, to get a call, or, or just to know that you're praying for us, there's, there's a meal that is brought over or a visit or whatever. I just sit there and I go, I need this. I pretend I don't need it. I don't need this. I'm the minister in this church. I'll be doing the ministering. I I need it. But you know what we need as a faith family? It's for you and I to honor each other as we pursue God and worship Him and all that we do, refusing to bend and even being willed to be hated by the world, not because we are obnoxious, but simply because we're pursuing the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We glorify you in all things. And now, God,